medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. Chinese medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Chiological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of Chinese medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese medicine. Listen in to these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Today, I've got Michael Fitzgerald with me. Michael is a practitioner and a translator who has spent enough time in China and Taiwan that he loves stinky tofu. He's worked as an editor on numerous publications and is one of the co-translators of our subject today, a book called A Walk Along the River. This is a delightful book that discusses the clinical work of Yu Guojun, which we're going to get into here in just a moment. Michael teaches at the Academy of Chinese Culture and Health Sciences, and he currently is in practice in Berkeley, California, where he runs Stone Mountain Medicine. Michael, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. It's always great to talk with you. Yes, and likewise. I, uh, I'm so glad you're here with us today and that we have a chance to talk about this book. I, When it first came out, I bought it immediately just based on the three guys who translated. I figured this has got to be good. And it really is. It's an amazing book on Chinese medicine. And I'm so happy that we're going to have a chance to talk about this today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I I enjoyed working on this book and I've met Dr. Yu and he's a he's a really great guy. I think it's always nice to have a, a project where you're helping bring something to the West and you like the person and you've got to meet the person uh, whose book you're translating. Uh, there's, there's, there's lots of egos in China, but he's a humble man and he's uh, very willing to teach and uh, a great person. So I, I enjoyed working on it from both the content and, and the fact that it was his book. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I had a, a, a similar experience with Dr. Huang. I, there's an opportunity to talk with him at length, and he was quick with an email response as well. I've, I feel like in translating that book, I ended up getting to learn a lot about how he thinks. Did you have something similar with uh, Dr. Yu? Yes. He, um, we, I, we visited him in Lushan in Sichuan for a few days, and then later... Not myself, but Craig and Andy and Dan went to visit him again and ask him some specific questions. Unfortunately, I wasn't able there to go there for that. But we did talk to him the first time I went about some of the specific ideas and generally some Chinese medicine questions. And I really would like to go and sit down with him in his clinic. He was a little shy about that, but I think we can get him to do that in the future. But you know, he is a very, very learned man. He's a man who, in translating this book, he would write in Chengyu or idioms in every, you know, almost every chapter and sometimes several within a paragraph. And 
you really got to understand from talking to him that he has read so many Chinese medicine books and really knows his his subject matter and he knows the history of it and the changes. And if you read the book, he'll able to talk a little bit about how, you know, this person saw it this way and this person saw it another way. And you you really feel like he was a, a living treasure of knowledge. One of the interesting things about the way you guys did this book, or maybe this is actually in the original. I, I, uh, I've not read the original. There's, he'll talk about a case, and then it's like there's this discussion going on. There's these three other doctors, whether their names Mo, Larry, and Curly, or something, like that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and and he'll explain something, and then one of these doctors will have a follow up question to it. And sometimes these questions are really spot on and sometimes they're you know just the kind of questions i would ask you know something that's you know a little boneheaded and basic but you know it's still really really helpful so it turns out there's this discussion that goes along with the case studies well you know that's why we translated the decided to translate this book is because all of us really liked that format it's a format that you do not see I, I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. It may exist, but you know, there's so many books in China. But um, it's the first book I saw in which he, the teacher, is explaining why he did what he did, and then the students get to ask questions. And as you said, some of those questions you can tell, and I, I will, I'll tell you that the the quote, quote unquote students are actually now all doctors of in their own right. They they are doctor use students, but they are also practitioners, and. The questions, obviously, they are also very knowledgeable and ask very, very good questions, which help uh, elucidate points that maybe Dr. Yu didn't explain clearly. But also what's wonderful is they have really simple questions, like you said, you and I might ask to say, to say, oh, you know, I don't really understand what you mean by that. Could you explain it more simply? And he'll go on to explain it more simply or to a, a question in which us, the readers, may not be privy to some certain information, and he'll go and ask them about, or rather his students will ask him about to clarify some certain points. So it's really great in that way, because when you read Chinese books, there's a lot of, often a lot of questions. A guy will say, oh, here's this guy came in with this, and here's what I did, and they might explain it a little bit. Some doctors don't explain anything. There's just, here's what I did, and they expect you to sort of figure it out or, 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 or come to your own conclusions. But What's beautiful is that he really helps you along and doesn't leave you hanging. Yes, there's that. The other thing for me, as much as I love studying Chinese medicine, and I do, I got to tell you, sometimes it's really boring. You know, it's like I could read a case study or two, and then, you know, without that additional dialogue going on, you know, I've got to think about it myself or I have to go look it up in some, you know, some other book or cross-reference. You know, it takes time and it's, uh, it, you know, it's not, it's interesting, but it's not engaging, I guess is what I want to say for me studying Chinese medicine. But Absolutely. reading this book is like, wow, and then what comes next? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you've read those books and I've read those books that leave you wondering, why exactly did you use that herb? Exactly. Maybe I understand why I use that formula, but what was it about that herb that you chose? And you're so happy when, when once in a while you find a, a book where the doctor explains why they use that. And um, But this book even goes further, as, as we said, like explaining why, explaining some of the ideas about the history of where this 
disease name came from and what it means and really clarifying a lot of information that I think particularly in, you know, the master's programs around the country fail to go in depth sometimes in some of these ideas. Yeah, it's sort of, I've heard other people talk about it in terms of we learned to get a snapshot, but we're not really seeing the movie. Yeah, lots of little snapshots together. Lots of little snapshots. And it's hard to get a sense of the motion, you know, and, and the underlying dynamics when you're just yeah, looking exactly. at a snapshot. Yeah. You know, you mentioned in the foreword of your book that it can be challenging to bring a book from Chinese into English, right? Because the writing style in Chinese might make perfect sense, but word-for-word translations make it a really rough go in English. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the English version of this book might differ a bit from the Chinese. Honestly, this book, not so much as others, was it a factor, but it was somewhat. We did have a discussion about um, trying to make this book a little bit more readable in that Chinese medicine books can be very dry, and particularly in case studies, a little bit rote. You know, here's they came in, and here they had this, and blah, blah, blah. But it was important to me and to all of us really to have uh, try to have a book in which it sounded like people were having a conversation to make it a little bit um, less formal. And that book already did that to a certain degree, but I think we just tried to soften the language. And we didn't, that didn't mean we removed any of the important meanings or anything like that. It was just really mostly about um, taking books that often tend to be a little dry and rote and make them a little bit, to make it feel a little bit more like you're at the table sitting in on their discussion. And, and certainly, in terms of terminology, I think we followed the uh, pretty much followed the um, Eastland Press terminology. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. And and the other thing really was again just a lot of this uh, uh, idioms that Doctor Yu likes to use, which really in a way make it a little bit for the Chinese reader a little bit more casual or a little bit more colloquial. Yes, and for the Western reader, it makes it almost impenetrable. Right, exactly. Exactly. So we had to figure that out. Some of them we translated, these idioms translated directly. Uh, others we just, he'd throw six of them in a sentence. That was, I think, his record in this book was six in one sentence. And we had to, we had to kind of change that a little bit. But overall, it was about making it readable and reader-friendly without sacrificing any of the any of the important content or meaning. Well, the content is is great. You know, he's got, the way it's laid out, if, if our listeners are not familiar with it, in fact, if they're not familiar with it, they might want to go check it out. I'm going to put in a quick plug here because the, the book's not just readable, it's clinically amazingly useful. It's, it's divided up by some different illnesses. And he goes really in-depth into these illnesses and, and how he's done it. You know, like you said, Michael, he seems to have this really broad background in Chinese medicine. He's done a lot of reading of his own, and he's clearly thought about it and, and consolidated it, you know, into something of his own. At the same time, one of the things I found really interesting, he has a bit of an eye towards some Western medicine. Mm. And even sometimes we'll use, so for example, in the section on, uh, I believe it was respiratory issues, he uses xian he zao for treating coughs. This is a, usually a blood regulating herb, but mm-hmm. he uses it, it. I remember reading this and going, wow, that's 
interesting. And, and I think one of the doctors even asks for more information about it, but he uses it because it's got a bit of a steroidal effect, as he said. I wonder if you could tell us more about, you know, his ideas behind that or other places where you've seen him do that. Well, that's a good question because, you know, the more you read Chinese uh, uh, case study books, you'll see Chinese doctors, you know, m some more than others, but bring them bring in a little bit of Western medicine ideas. And I have to say that some of them, there's a whole range of what that means. In his case, I'll first talk about that, is that with the Shan Hutao, actually, I think that came, uh, what Andy told me is that came from a little bit of folk medicine. In other words, that they traditionally in folk medicine have used Xian He Cao as a strengthening herb or to give after illnesses to bring back one's strength. And here's a case where he says, oh, it's kind of like steroids. I, I think that's how we translated that, it. Yeah, that, that was the word. It really caught my attention. And I think when you think of steroids, you think of like, I mean, you should think what his meaning is sort of like Lance Armstrong, like giving you a boost or an advantage or something like that. And so... You know, his mind, and I think lots of doctors' mind, minds, they, of course, see science as a valuable tool to further understand the human body and how it works. So he says, oh, well, here's this thing that was used in folk medicine to strengthen, and here's this person who's had this long-term illness. You know, maybe that's sort of like what the Western medicine calls steroids and, and in promoting uh, the body's innate physical wellness or whatnot. So... Yeah, I, I think he's very loosely borrowing that idea from Western medicine. I don't think anybody who gets ill and obviously in the West gets steroids to help them recover from it. But that was his idea. And I think it's really a mixture of seeing how a herb is traditionally and how it might be explained in modern medicine. And honestly, sometimes those things make sense and sometimes they don't make sense. And And I will say, though, that he does throughout the book in fact, I think I have a, a quote here in which he's talking about dizziness, a treatment for dizziness. It's in the liver section. And he says his teacher, Dr. Zhang, strongly believed in using knowledge from Western medicine in the service of Chinese medicine. And he frequently said that stones from other mountains may be used to polish jade. So people like Dr. Yu will use Western medicine knowledge, but they're always going back to the Chinese method of diagnosis and prescribing herbs based on traditional ideas. The question in their mind is, does this Western medicine knowledge further our understanding of this pathomechanism or what might be going on in the body? But always going back to the, the, the same principles to treat an illness, the Chinese medicine principles. So that's how Dr. Yu does it. There are doctors who say, oh, well, we've seen research on X herb um, use, doing, having this effect, so we're going to use it. And I think he does that a couple places in the book. Lots of doctors in China do that, saying, well, studies have shown, shown that Don Shen is very good for certain skin diseases, and they'll throw it into certain skin disease formulas or whatnot. But overall, that that's like an add on to what he's already doing, which is really very Chinese medicine based. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. 
The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Right, so he's not at one moment doing Chinese medicine, at the next moment dropping it and like throwing this other Western medicine in on top, which actually you in the mainland China in particular, you see that a lot, right? They've got this thing called Zhongxi Jiehe, right? Chinese and Western medicine together. And, and sometimes it's really, they'll be thinking Westernly one moment and Chinese the next and... It can be hard if you're a student like I was. It can be hard to follow what's actually going on. Right. And um, again, there's all sorts of a whole range of how people use those ideas and some who perhaps rely very much on what studies have said about a particular herb or particular formula on the effects of something. But there are also those doctors who say, well, look, Western medicine gives us a clear idea of what's happening with the circulatory system as we age and things like arteriosclerosis and whatnot. So um, I'm treating this person based on Chinese pattern differentiation. But if I know because of their age and some other symptoms that they may have arteriosclerosis, is there a formula? Is there something in Chinese medicine that looks like it may actually be referring to those symptoms? And can I use that formula to treat that, you know, or to prevent any complications from from that illness? And and people do do that. And I don't think that I think that's perfectly reasonable. If you have a particular herb that's supposed to prevent that, I don't know that's not necessarily wrong. But I think people like Dr. Yu always say you, you, you can think like that. You can use those things, but you always have to go back and at least incorporate basic ideas of Chinese medicine and how it treats illness because otherwise you are just, uh, you know, you're just sort of chasing the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, and you're just uh, uh, chasing symptoms or you're not paying attention to the patient's symptoms. You're paying, you're more focused on, on this concept of, heart, for example, hardening of the arteries, but what are the symptoms a person is coming in with now? And if you don't pay attention to that base pattern or symptoms, you're not going to get better. So how do I frame this question? Let me ponder on this for a second. It, you know, here in the West in particular, we, it seems we've got competing schools of Chinese medicine, right? There's the sort of TCM, which gets a lot of flack these days. There's traditional, there's classical. We've got these different ways of even thinking about Chinese medicine here in the States. 
how does that, in your experience in, in Asia, are they dealing with those issues as well? I mean, we've got Dr. Yu here who's, you know, he's rooted in some deep stuff. He's rooted in some old stuff. But, I mean, how would you characterize that? Is that a fair question? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, there. I mean, there's a whole huge, I mean, I wouldn't say debate. It's not necessarily an open debate, but it's, uh, it's certainly, you know, uh, different schools of thought going back and forth and, and, and debating with each other about what's the best way. Uh, first of all, though, let me just give you some background. That's very, there's a, there's a very strong sort of sense of national identity in China. And part of the people who promote being rooted in the classics, there's a certain underlying curtain of nationalism there and that we don't need external forces telling us how to do medicine. We've had this perfect thing for thousands of years and so on and so forth. And um, I mean, I, the reason I studied Chinese is because I wanted to try to get to the root of what Chinese medicine is. And I kind of imagined that I could get into my brain as if I was an ancient person, if I read enough of this stuff and um, uh, understood the, the theory and the philosophy behind it, I could kind of be there with them and understand things in a different way. And I think I, you know, I'd like to believe I was successful to a certain degree anyway. But the Chinese are going through this debate as well as like, what is true Chinese medicine? How much do we rely on scientific research? How much do we rely on what the ancients said? And there's definitely those schools of thought. There's the pure classical people who, who uh, only prescribe Jing Fong or Zhang Zhong Jing's formulas. There are those who mix Western and Chinese. There's people like Dr. Yu who basically very rooted in Chinese medicine who might, again, borrow some things or some ideas a little bit from Western medicine. And most importantly, are they clinically useful? So does this Western medicine idea help me treat this person better? And if it doesn't, then I'll throw it out because that's really the goal for me. He's very much a clinician, and that's what this book is really directed at. Even though he explains some theories in there, he explains the pathomechanisms of why he does what he does, which is very interesting, which is why I would recommend people read this book. The bottom line is, does these ideas facilitate this person getting better and because even that there's historically competing ideas in Chinese medicine, how to treat something he's seeking out what's the one that makes the most sense and what gets the best clinical results. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but, but yeah, it's a huge debate in China. You know, where do we go with Chinese medicine? What is Chinese medicine? It's part of wrapped up in part of who's our national identity. Who are we as the Chinese people? You know, if you go to China, everybody's wearing Western quote, Western clothes, modern Western clothes. And, Mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of things that we do in the West. So I think there's a huge identity about where, what part of our culture is meaningful and how do we live that and who are we and all these sort of things. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it really shows and it serves as a reminder that medicine is based in a time, it's based in a culture, you know, it's based on, you know, conditions and influences and it's not this pure thing by itself. There's all these other influences that, that get brought to bear. So it sounds like they're having similar questions and arguments like we would have over here about what's the best thing. Yeah, and, and I mean, I mean, even look historically at Chinese medicine, it's changed over time. You know, there are people who say what Zhang Zhongjing was doing 
was sort of a distinct style than what came later. And all these people in China had was a book, which Shanghan, the Shanghan Lun and Jingwei explains very little. It just says, you see these signs. This is then a Shaoyang or this is a Taiyang. And if they have these signs, give this formula. It doesn't explain a lot. And people had to figure it out on their own. And, and then there's the Huangdi Neijing, which people say, uh, for example, uh, Feng Shi Lun uh, and, and Hu Shi Shu's school says Zhang Zhongjing and the Huangdi Neijing were two different systems. Well, wow. I mean, you know, all of what we learn in TCM today is sort of based on Huangdi Neijing ideas and later generations interpretations of that. And now they're saying it's actually completely different than what Zhang Zhongjing was doing. And forget that part. Forget what about the post-classical. There's just in within that you could have huge debates about how to approach things. And this guy's emphasis of phlegm and this guy's emphasis of yin nourishment and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think we get enough of that sort of debate. We sort of get given a fixed idea. Yes. And it's not it's not so fixed. Well, it it's so rooted in the context in the time. It it, it wasn't until I'd been practicing for way too long that I started to notice when when I'd look in the Materia Medica in the formulary books that there would be a notation about where that formula came from. Right? Because when I'm learning Chinese medicine, I'm just going, Oh, this is all Chinese medicine and you know, these are useful formulas. And later it began to dawn on me that formulas from the late Han are addressing issues, culture, and circumstances that are wildly different from, say, the Song. Mm-hmm. And that's different yeah. from other dynasties and, and times. So you've got formulas, ideas, and thinking that get rooted in sort of the circumstances of a particular time. But we don't usually pay attention to that when we're thinking about a formula or how it might be helpful for someone. We're looking at the herbs in it. We're thinking about how it might work, but we aren't paying attention to the social uh, context that it might have evolved out of. Yeah, and I wish I had you know a couple lifetimes to study all that. I'm a little weak on the Chinese history, but I do know some things where, for whatever reason, Zhang Zhongjing... Okay, there's the Tang Ye Jing, the, the classic of, of, of decoctions. And um, this is supposedly where a lot of Zhang Zhongjing got these formulas. And, and yet it seems like perhaps he edited it because that book perhaps had some more. Uh, what we know about that book is very little, and it's a lot based on a guy who said he memorized the book. And um, uh, I, I won't talk about too too much because I'm not really particularly clear on that. But there was supposedly a lot of five element stuff in that book. And Zhang Zhongjing decided for whatever reason to eliminate that because he doesn't get into a lot of five element or, or, or Taoist ideas or ideas of connection to the I Ching in this, in his book, he sort of decided to take that out. And then, you know, later on, Chinese medicine continued to be whatever it was and evolve and change. And I think it was the Song Dynasty where Taoism became very popular again and in vogue, and uh, there were a lot of doctors interpreting Chinese medicine with a more emphasis on five elements and this and that. And um, so, yeah, it's it's what time did you take that from, and why were why was that becoming popular? Why was Taoism popular? What what aspects of it were 
were in vogue and how did that influence this person's writing? And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a huge subject. Kind of need more than just Chinese medicine doctors doing Chinese medicine. We need some some anthropologists and and Chinese history experts to sort of weigh in on this topic. I think. Yeah, it's it it's not so simple, and which I think is again part of the value and charm of this particular book is we've got this guy, Doctor Yu, who. He spent a lot of time with this. I mean, he has distilled a lot of material to get the clinical chops that he currently has. I'm wondering, in doing this book, in working with the materials, and you know, because when you spend time with translating, it, it's hard not to have it seep into your practice in some way. I'm wondering if there's ways that working on this book has influenced the way you practice. Well, I mean, I think first of all, very simply, is that he has some very good, he has a tons of experience and he has some very good formulas, which I have used, which were very useful. Um, I think that the great thing about this book is that the information is fairly easy, it's fairly, uh, excuse me, it's, it's easily put into practice and it's made for that. It's a clinical book and he talks about why he gave this formula as opposed to a different type of formula and when that formula might be useful. But in the case here, this other one is because of X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, I think in that regard, he's influenced me in the sense of being very pragmatic, which hopefully I was already, but being much more pragmatic and, and, and thinking also about the body in very pragmatic ways. There's a you know, the chapter on uh, a person who has a cough, I forget the exact title, it's in the first section on lung, chronic cough, and pointing out how stop coughing herbs won't work in this person because really the problem is not in their lung, it's in their throat. And therefore defining specifically stop coughing herbs as herbs that affect the lung, and the throat is part of the lung system, but has different properties. You need to moisten it. You need to eliminate wind and that itchy feeling you have in your throat. And um, he's very pragmatic. I think that that was probably one of, you know, some of the most important things that I got from this book was that he's looking at the human body as a living entity in which these theories are explaining very specific issues that weren't necessarily made clear in Chinese medicine. They were not made explicit. And he makes Chinese medicine theory explicit to a very particular, a particular case that comes into his office. Yeah. I, re I remember reading that one about uh, that you just talked about where the issue is not about uh, stopping a cough, but the issue is about working on the, uh, on the throat and the, in the bronchial tubes actually. Yeah. And moistening them. They're, they're mucous membranes and they get dry and they get irritated. Right. So, so that's how, in a way how he sort of says, well, you know, Western medicine helps us. It clarify is much clearer that this part of the body is different than the actual lung, you know, which may have bronchial spasms or may have its own particular issues. It's unique, right? Another thing that I really like about him is that he, he's always promoting that we don't just blindly accept Chinese medicine theory, but we, we need to think about it. And he says, I'll quote him here again in this chapter about the liver. First, we should explore historical literature that discusses dizziness and carefully analyze what we find. While we can delight in the joys of the literature, 
And I think that's interesting because we we all kind of got interested in Chinese medicine because we picked up a Chinese medicine book and it sounded very poetic. It sounded very it was just it, lovely in some sort of way. Right. Mm -hmm, absolutely. While we can delight in the joys of the literature, we must avoid simply reading whatever comes to hand and accepting what we read without critical thought. I mean, there lies the beauty of Dr. Yu. He's always t asking us to to think about these ideas as best we can. And I think that is not what, unfortunately, what most TCM schools are do. I don't know if they're even prepared to do that because, again, the literature on Chinese medicine is huge. And what we've gotten in TCM, and I don't, I don't blame the people back in the last century who were trying to sort of organize this into a digestible format to teach to thousands of doctors. Like you said, TCM gets a lot of flack now, but I don't blame them. I think they did a fairly okay job, but there's a huge amount of literature. And again, like people had different ideas, think about them, but most TCM schools aren't equipped to say, hey, here's all these different ideas about phlegm and from this person and that person. Let's think about what they mean and think about what they might be trying to say. There's no thinking. I don't think there's very little thinking. In fact, I personally have gotten really frustrated as much as I love Chinese medicine, that I sort of chose a profession in which I'm supposed to just sort of mechanically do things, it seems like at times, to treat people, and I don't get to engage my own thought process. I mean, that's changed for me, actually, a lot. But initially, uh, feeling that I had no input in this. I just had to repeat it. And there was no, there's no thinking, very little thinking um, about these ideas and, and um, what they might mean and how they, that actually means in a physical person in front of us in order to foster critical thinking. Yeah, this, this brings up a question that I've been noodling on myself for a while because, you know, we run into things in the clinic and sometimes it's so textbook we're actually shocked and surprised. And there's other times... It's like, it's close, you know, we can kind of make it work. And there's these other times where the training that we've received, and, and again, I don't, I'm, I don't want to point fingers and I don't want to, you know, blame or anything like that, because I think if you do anything long enough, not just medicine, in a sense, there's a place where we have to go beyond what we've been trained. And there's a yeah. place where we have to go beyond the structures that we originally got because we needed those structures to orient us and get us set off in a direction. And that stuff yeah. is really important because otherwise you don't get to begin. But at a certain point, those structures that helped us get to where we are will prevent us from getting to the next place. Yeah, we become reliant on theory as a theory that's not embedded in a clinical practice. Exactly. So I'm curious, because you've been at this for a while. So this is a really personal question, actually. And, and maybe this would maybe be a good question for Dr. Yu, actually. Maybe we can get him on and ask him at some point. But All right. the question that I've got and that I actually struggle with in clinic from time to time is when I've reached the end of what I know, and now I need to be able to open up to, to something in a different way. I need to go beyond the structures that I've got any thoughts for yourself as you've developed as a practitioner over the years about how you come up to that edge and realize what got me here isn't getting, isn't helping me with this patient now? 
There's another way. How else can, yeah, right? You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. How else do we open up to stuff when we don't know what we're doing? In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, you know, I've been toying with this sort of very subject for the past few years and I mean, it's an ongoing learning experience for all of us. And I, I remember seeing my teachers in school reading about, you know, the function of, of herbs. And I thought, wow, these guys are still, I mean, and you do, you have to go back and remind yourself again and again, read about a formula. What was something you missed and, 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 and a particular herb? What is its function again? Oh, I saw this guy use it. What, wait, I forgot some of the functions. I always use ho-po for bloating. What else is Hopo used for, you know? Um, it's just an ongoing process. But, yeah, I, I feel like, in a way, I went to Taiwan, I went to China. I was really asking, you know, I was seeking a teacher, and what you're doing is you're, they're holding your hand as you're going through this stuff. And if you're lucky, you know, and you get to sit with them and ask questions, and then leading you along the way. And then at some point, it's really kind of understood in, in China or you know, very much more, uh, it became obvious to me, I guess, at some point where it's like some of the teachers didn't have, they didn't have answers to all my questions. No teacher does. But what they're saying is, yeah, you just kind of got to give somebody a formula and see what happens. You know I mean? You're on your own. I can tell you what I figured out. And I don't know actually the answer to that question you just asked. You're, you're on your own. You've got to figure it out. That's just the way it is. It's uh, cutting your own path. So um, not to say that necessarily, and then this again raises the question, am I just sort of going to quote unquote cut my own path and do something totally different? Well, no, you know, this comes from a culture in which you obviously reference history. You respect your elders. You refer to uh, historical experience. You refer to them, you read them to give you ideas. Um, but here we are, all of us at some point having to break off, so to speak, break might not be the best word, but we're going to have to try to, um, to deal with things that we don't find an answer to and figure out what's the best approach. And hopefully what we've learned gives us an idea, but, um, I've been toying with this as well. And, 
where recently, you know, studying with Dr. Huang and talking about, uh, you know, this combination, which is also a, a Japanese idea as well, uh, you know, formula pattern, like not having so much theory. Here's the person. Here's these symptoms. What formula does that fit into? Do that formula. And again, individual herbs. Now, Dr. Huang, he, you know, he says really it's best to learn single herbs through formulas. He actually recommends starting with formulas and then trying to understand individual herbs based on how they're used in those formulas. I agree. I think that's a great way. But I recently got to this idea that I expressed to my students. I say, you know, before theory, there had to been in history a point where some friend of Mr. Chun comes to him and says, I've got a bellyache. And he says, okay, well, I know Bai Shao treats bellyache. Take that. And the guy comes back, oh, I feel much better. Thanks. And another guy comes and he says, I got bellyache. And he said, take Bai Shao. And he says, oh, it made it worse or it didn't help me. And he says, well, I know ginger could be used for bellyache. Try ginger. And he says, oh, thanks. I got better. And at that moment, even before theory, you have to start to think to yourself, okay, what is the difference between somebody who needs Bai Shao and the difference between somebody who needs ginger? Mm-hmm. Well, we know ginger is spicing. It makes your belly feel warm when you take it. Maybe Mr. So-and-so had a puffy tongue. And I've noticed that ginger works better on people with puffy tongues and Bai Shao works better on people with, with uh, you know, cramping pain or red tongues or whatnot. You still don't have any theory. You're just basing it on on symptoms and basing it on other signs in the body that indicate differences between patient A and patient B. And so when I start thinking about that, part of me goes back actually to Western herbalism, which I left because I studied a little bit of that and felt like it wasn't specific enough and it didn't have a theory to go with it to explain a lot of stuff, it would just say, oh, this is good for the liver. Oh, this is good for detoxing the liver. Well, how do I know somebody needs detoxing of the liver? But in a way, strange way, it's come back to that too because I feel like in TCM school, there's a, they're teaching Chinese medicine backwards. They're putting theory before, before practice, I'll, I'll say it that way. And so a lot of students come to me and, oh, they have spleen chi deficiency, they have dampness and this and that. And and um, they're very confused about what those ideas mean. And as an herbalist, I'm trying to get them to think a little bit, not to get rid of the other stuff, but to think a little bit more straight, like, okay, what herbs treat abdominal pain? And differentiating from a very particular signs of groups of symptoms and signs that help us say, yeah, that's that person might be good with, you know, uh, do well with cinnamon in the formula. Which formula? I don't know. But maybe a cinnamon-based one. I can mm-hmm. see their circulation is poor. I can see they have that purplish, dusky tongue. That's, they need cinnamon. Oh, look at that guy. has got a wet, puffy tongue. He needs ginger. What formula? I'm not sure. i got to look at all the other symptoms. But they need a formula with ginger in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And thinking in that really rudimentary way, which gets lost in TCM school. Well, I think it not only gets lost in TCM school, it's it's not even in our culture. And because we're products of our culture, it can really take some cultivation to look at things this way. I'm I'm sure you have this in your 
happen in your clinic, and, and I suspect the listeners have this happen too. Someone comes in, they've got XYZ, whatever, insomnia, let's say. You give them a formula, and they go, wow, that, that's really helpful. Can I give this to my cousin who also has <laughs> insomnia? Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, our frame of mind is, well, it depends on what kind of insomnia they have. Uh-huh. And yet, as a practitioner, in that moment of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I got to get them out the door and someone else is coming in and I want them to feel yeah. better. You know, all the noise <laughs> yeah. that goes on. Right, 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 right. It can be easy to go to that. Well, what's that thing that's going to work without really looking at, well, actually, who am I dealing with here and what do they need? What's the what's the thing about them that really catches my attention? Was it something in the pulse or something in the tongue or something about their particular constellation of issues that, uh, yeah, that, that, that grabs you and you go, yep, that's a cinnamon thing or, Oh, yep. Nope. Cinnamon's bad for this. Don't use cinnamon for this person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what this brings to mind is sort of, uh, is two things. One of the things I've learned about Chinese culture is that, They're both, there's those Chinese people or that aspect of Chinese culture, which is so beautiful and so lovely at taking complex things and making them very simple. Now, sometimes they make it too simple, oversimplified. But I think that's what a lot of us got drawn into Chinese culture or Chinese medicine is because there's sort of these lovely explanations that sort of sum up things that seem simple. That's one part of Chinese culture. I've also met Chinese people who have this other aspect of Chinese culture, which is taking very simple things or relatively uncomplicated things and making them extremely complicated. <laughs> and and it's odd that it's maybe it's not odd, but that these these both these extremes exist within the culture. And um, there's times when I feel like TCM overcomplicates uh, or complicates relatively simple things. And this is what a lot of us have a problem with. So it's both things exist at the same time. One, some guy comes and says to you, oh, can I give this formula to my cousin who has the same problem because I feel better? And you think, well, each case is unique and I have to look at them. And uh, you know, maybe you have an experience where I gave it to my brother, but it made it worse. And you're like, yeah, well, that's what they teach us. And that's what we know. Everybody's different. You shouldn't have done that. But I've also had situations where a patient said, Hey, I had this problem and you really helped me. And I gave all this formula to my friends and, and they're all feeling better. And you're like, really, was that simple? Like you just gave them this formula and they're better. Like that sort of defeats what they taught me. Like everybody's different. And both these things exist because, because, well, anyway, this is what I've been trying to sort of, uh, I don't know, say figure out, but try to explain to my students and, you know, as well to myself is that, we sometimes I think we overemphasize. It's again, it's a back and forth. Both things exist, but sometimes we overemphasize that everybody's different, without understanding that. For example, there are certain formulas that are quite popular, and the reason they're popular, and I'll mention the dreaded Xiaoyao sign, you know, because it's a formula that's overprescribed that doesn't work for everybody, and yet it's sort of well known and famous because because it works and helps a lot of people feel better. It's the reason is, in my opinion, is because the Xiaoyao San predicament or Xiaoyao San disease, if we could call it that, is something that's very, very common for people to get. Yes. 
Yeah, well, it's so common that in Taiwan, if you're checking out at the 7-Eleven, they usually have like little one-hit bottles there. Oh, right? do they? I don't remember oh, that. Yeah. Oh, my God. When I first got to Taiwan, I loved this. It was just, it was hilarious to me. At the checkout stand. At the 7-Eleven. At Huan and Guangling. Ding, ding. Sorry, right? 7-Eleven. For those who don't know, let's just mention, you, there's a joke in Taiwan. For any 7-Eleven you go to, you can look down the street and you'll see another 7-Eleven. That's it's a, it's truly amazing. It's the ultimate convenience store. But what was a, what, what was such a delight for me is at the checkout stand, they got these little one-hit bottles of Xiaoyao San, Su Tang, Liu Wei Di Huang Wan. And there's like, you know, a handful of, you know, Chinese medicine's greatest hits in a condensed one-hit bottle. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I mean, they do have a problem with sort of just uh, uh, and again, Dr. Huang likes to distinguish medical practitioners from businessmen. And certainly the businessmen would love to be able to just say, yeah, you just take some Leo A.D. Huang or Xiaoyan San and you'll feel better and whatnot. Um, so we don't want to listen to them because they're businessmen. But nevertheless, Xiao, for example, back to Xiaoyan San, Xiaoyan San condition is something that lots of people can get. And it may pass on its own. Or it may get to the point where you have headaches and that formula helps you. That is much more common than, say, somebody who's gone into shock. If one of the functions of Sinitong is treating shock, how often do people go into shock? Well, you know, I walk down to the coffee shop. I don't see people going into shock, right? I mean, it's a, it's a much more rare occurrence. And, and, and the difference is that the reason that certain formulas work well is because they're treating something that's a very common phenomenon. So you could just throw it out there randomly and you'd get good results maybe 40% of the time. Yeah. And you throw out another formula. It's like, no, that formula is for a very specific illness. We don't even talk about that in Chinese medicine. Everything is supposed to be taken from blank, from zero, and figured out what's going on with the person. And without even talking about this idea that obviously some for formulas, Urchintong works well for lots of things because you know, one of the things it treats mild stomach upset is something that lots of people get. So again, 10 people could take urchin tong, you know, and 40% of them maybe feel better because what their problem was, was just stomach upset. You know, it has other effects related to central nervous system and being and relaxing and anxiety and whatnot. And that one, you better find, you know, that one you need to find somebody, for example, who has anxiety or maybe even insomnia, and digestive problems together, and there's a correlation. Then you give merchant on. So that's when you need to differentiate between that person's insomnia and somebody whose nerves system is just burnt out because they work 20 hours a day, uh, they have marital problems, they have mental, emotional stress, and so you want to give them Swanzao Rentong or something. What I say, you know, Swanzao Rentong is sort of like tired but wired. You know, like your nervous system's just frayed. So we do differentiate. Yeah, this is one of the things that, again, I so appreciate about Dr. Yu in this book. Because he can make things look really simple. I mean, you read his explanations and you go, yeah, I follow that. And that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And his simple explanations, though, don't come because he's just looking at simple stuff or he thinks simply. It's because he's actually done all this work in the background. Yeah, that that has cultivated the ability to see things simply. 
and his knowledge is in, in part come from him being critical of things that he's read and asking why do they say that and what do they mean? Like he just asked us in that example. You should not just take everything as it is, but be critical of it or a- try to analyze it. And that's that's why he's so good. And that's why his explanations do make sense because he breaks it down into things that we can understand. Yeah, it's great. So, Michael, we're a bit out of time here. Okay. And I'm so... Did we answer all your questions? Nah, I always have questions. That's why I've got a podcast <laughs> show. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe another day we'll get together and discuss uh, the uh, joys and uh, challenges of, of translating and, uh, you know, and the words, more, the more, and words, forgotten words <laughs> and things. That would be that would be fun. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with, though, before we wind this thing down? Yeah, I think I, I would say, A, you should go buy this book because I think it's very useful. It's for people who want to use herbs in the clinic and. I think you'll find it very practical. And I think that we as Westerners receiving this gift, because it really is a gift. I mean, the, it's amazing kind of what the Chinese came, with, came up with and figured out and whatnot. But we need to take it as Westerners, and that's okay. And we can be critical of it, and we can have critical thinking of it and ask questions. And if we don't find the answer, look, seek them out. Maybe we need to develop our own thoughts about certain things. That is also content for another discussion. Yes. <laughs> um, where would people go to get your book? Uh, well, they can go online to Eastland Press. They're the great folks who published it. That's the best place to get it. I think it's on Amazon, but I would vote for Eastland Press. They get a little bit more money that way. And I will just say this. Translating, as you know, Michael, is a financially unrewarding job. We do this sort of for the love of the medicine. And if you could support Eastland Press by buying your book at their website, that would be great because it's, I think there's a couple publishers who've gone out of business because it was hard to make money translating books. And it's hard to find people to translate things when they don't make any money at it. And no matter how many books you buy, I won't really make any money or much worth mentioning at this. But Eastland Press needs to stay alive, and they've uh, published a lot of good books. I will second that. It makes a lot of sense to support those that are bringing this stuff from Chinese into English. So uh, buy the books and and help keep some uh, inspiration in the teacup for these folks. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation... If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (laughs) 